and welcome to the Good Health Podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Good, a registered nutritional therapy practitioner and functional medicine practitioner. Join me as we explore thyroid, brain and fatigue conditions with positivity. From Hashimoto's to multiple sclerosis, chronic fatigue to adrenal dysfunction, I've got you covered. With expert advice and tips to help you take action now and inspiring real patient stories from successful individuals who refuse to let their health hold them back. Start your journey to good health today. And don't forget to come and join the conversation on Instagram at good underscore health, that's G-O-O-D-E. Or visit my website at nicolegoodhealth.com to find out more. Welcome to today's episode of the Good Health Podcast. Today I'm welcoming my colleague and fellow functional medicine practitioner, Karen Pree-Smith, onto the podcast. We are going to talk all things long COVID. Karen is a functional medicine practitioner and she specializes in complex digestive symptoms, long COVID and post-viral fatigue. Let's jump straight into the conversation. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Lovely to be here, Nicole. Yeah, so we kind of, we well, we connected through obviously being in the industry, I think quite a few years ago now, wasn't it? It's been quite a while and we've, you know, we sort of crossed paths sort of a few times, but how did you sort of get into you know, into this sort of world? What's your sort of story? Because I know yours is a little bit different because I've spoken to a few other practitioners and we've always sort of said, you know, there's usually kind of their own health problems and things like that. But I know your story is just slightly different. So just tell us a little bit about how you sort of got into this, into nutrition in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. So I've always been quite academic and I ended up becoming a, a sort of lifestyle and fashion journalist for a number of years. So I worked for a lot of big magazines, newspapers and then I did an MA actually in the history and culture of fashion, <laughs> which wow, I okay. found out there wasn't a huge market fashionably for writing about that in women's magazines. But I think the thing that I always loved about journalism and still do is I like the story behind it. So I like the fact that there's, you've got to dig around for the details. It's often, you know, things that being the first to connect join the dots and kind of put this story together so that's what really attracted me to moving into something like nutrition because it's all about really listening to people's journeys hearing how these things came about and often kind of solving the mystery of where did this thing come from yeah I actually (laughs) had a client said to me the other day it was about a couple of weeks ago she said to me you're actually you're like a detective of health yeah, I really that. like that. I was, like, yeah, I was like, that is really what we do, isn't it? It is that's exactly as you've described it. So that's sort of digging in and finding like the root causes and getting to the bottom of the story and really finding out what's going on for a person. Exactly. So I, I loved all that side of things. Um, I still um, am a health journalist. So I moved more into kind of health and lifestyle. Um, but yeah, I started working for a number of clinics early in my career and started working for quite a well-known chronic fatigue post-viral fatigue clinic for about three years based in central London. Now I work for an integrated team in functional medicine specializes in oncology. I do more of the sort of histamine MCAS side of things which is mast cell activation syndrome and also work in digestive health. So I see clients for sort of SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, IBS, inflammatory bowel disease and in my own practice I've moved more into the long COVID side which is what we're focusing in on today. Yeah so that's what we're going to that's what we're going to jump into today is that sort of side of thing I mean it's interesting to hear all the different things that you work with but like you said today we're going to kind of have that 
conversation around long COVID because it is a huge, it's a huge conversation. And I was actually looking at some of the, I mean, we're always keeping, because obviously it's a very fluid area. It's moving all the time. There's more research coming out all the time. So obviously it's not, it's something that's evolving. You know, I'm always sort of reading the research and keeping up on it because it's something that comes up, you know, in, in clinic a lot. So I was looking at some of the stats and I just kind of wanted to just read some of these out for the listeners because they're quite, I found some UK ones. I mean, obviously a lot of the time when we're doing these things, you know, USA, we get a lot of stats for, but maybe less so for the UK, but these were UK, they were June, 2022. So we're another, you know, another sort of, well, over a year on, aren't we? But they're quite astounding figures. So they said that basically with like long COVID, there was like 2 million people who were struggling with long COVID at the point of June 2022. So it's quite a way after the pandemic. Shocking, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. not enough. Yeah, within the UK, and it's still on the rise. They said that 405,000 were suffering less than 12 weeks following infection. 1.4 million were still struggling more than 12 weeks after infection. 807,000 were then still struggling a year after infection. And 403,000 were still struggling two years after infection. And they said all the research showed this was in in the immunology journal. I can I'll link it below, actually, below the episode if people want to re- want to have a read. But this was all variants of SARS-CoV, so all, all the different different variants that have come up. But they found that Omicron actually was the one that was giving the most people long COVID fascinating Um, yeah yeah, which is interesting and they said based on that there was roughly at at this point at June 2022 roughly 1.2 million individuals who still had long COVID a year you know and they were all a year or two after sort of that initial infection and I just thought that's really interesting as you're sort of looking up so I mean it's a that's a huge a huge problem isn't it huge number And I would say that I was really expecting, so I got into this area during the pandemic. And as you said, it's an evolving market, it's involving diagnoses and sort of treatment protocols. And I was really fascinated by the research again, kind of getting to that health detective role. And what surprised me is that I'm still fully booked with a wait list two years on, mm-hmm. and there's still more people coming to see me with who have had long COVID for now sort of two, three years that have gone through some, you know, very well set up NHS long COVID clinics. Some have gone to Germany or the States to get some really good treatment protocols in place, but they're still suffering. I find that quite shocking. It's such a huge health epidemic, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I think, so the other thing, so let's actually, let's just clarify for people here that are listening. So when I talk long COVID, I'm often talking post-infection and also post the jab because yeah. you know that there's that there can be damage from that too. When you talk long COVID, are you just talking infection or are you talking both as well? I'm talking the, I'm talking the same. Yeah, so exactly the same. But I'd say I think the official definition is 12 weeks post-infection. So when those earlier stats we talked about, there's a bit yeah. of discrepancy between that within that 12 week and then post 12 weeks. So even 12 weeks one day is you're now talking the long COVID or it used to be called in the United States long haul COVID for a while. So that or kind of the more traditional post viral fatigue or post viral infection. Um, And this has been really interesting, I think, because chronic fatigue is something I know we both work with, with, we both work with chronic fatigue over the years, but chronic fatigue is one of those things that there's really been very little done about it. Very little in in the grand scheme of, you know, if we're looking at research for other illnesses, very little research into sort of chronic fatigue and things like that. And really there's, you know, there, there is a crossover. They are both post-viral fatigue conditions. 
But this sort of COVID one actually for chronic fatigue people has actually been almost a bit of a blessing that the research is now being done into long yeah. COVID, isn't it? And I think uh, it's interesting you touched on that because I think there was quite a lot of annoyance, if you like, within the sort of the ME post-viral fatigue and CFS, you know, client, current clientele because they've been suffering for years and there hasn't been much of an advancement in terms of protocols. You know, it was only last year, I believe, that they threw out the idea of graduated exercise as not being effective. But that been used for sort of 10, 15 years. So we've got 10, 15 years of people going through the system, not getting anywhere, having to seek external support. And then suddenly all this investment and time and energy and research into this new area. Obviously, it helps them, but it's a little too late, I'd say. Yeah, and I can, you can understand that. You can understand the, their, their sort of frustration around you know, the fact that, because I think a lot of the time as well, they've, had, they've not only not had the research, they've almost been you know I mean I know people who have had chronic fatigue who were sort of told it's you know it's sort of it's in your head almost and it's you know not a real thing and you know there's been a lot of dismissal around it hasn't there over the years and I mean I think it's more accepted now or certainly with I mean within our world it's, it's very accepted but I think even in conventional medicine it's sort of more accepted now but they've been through a lot haven't they with their yeah. sort of story and not getting answers not getting believed not getting understood and I mean hopefully this does change that for yeah. them and like you said bit little too late but for a lot of people but hopefully it is turning the tide and starting to get a little bit more research into these things and I think what's interesting as well is you've got a lot of doctors around COVID that there were no mechanisms of action at first of how does how does long COVID work so everyone in every specialism was kind of looking into it so you had some of the kind of front runners but people like Dr Samuel Yannick from the United States because I think his wife developed long COVID mm-hmm. and he was looking at it from a sort of immunological perspective so you suddenly had that insight into it which I think he was very groundbreaking and I follow a lot of his sort of protocols today and other people who are looking more at sort of like the bacterial load. So I know Debbie Cotton at Invivo did some wonderful work around the shifts in the gut microbiota for yeah, people yeah. who have COVID developing into long COVID. And they've got Dr. Tina Piers and Emma over at LifeCo GX who were looking at the histamine link and ESR2 receptors with long COVID. So lots of different areas of study that sort of pull it all together really to create those protocols. Yeah. And and it's what's needed. So if we sort of think, you know, if people are sort of listening to this, let's sort of start, I guess, with how would they recognize long COVID? What are the symptoms of long COVID? What should they, because, you know, a lot, a lot, some of these things, not all of them, but some of these things are things that we can almost accept as normal. So what sort of symptoms, if people are experiencing it, what should they be looking for and sort of saying, actually, there could be something going on and maybe I need some support? Well, I would say my long COVID clients fall into two broad categories. So with men, it tends to be younger athletic men from 18 to 25, maybe 18 to 30, who are, you know, type A, so very busy, love exercise, the type that are out for their 5am run, then lift weights, then full day at work, then, you know, partying hard, those type of people. So they, they are category one. And category two tends to be women, and most of my clients are women with long COVID, who are more in the sort of perimenopause to menopausal age range. So maybe sort of late 30s, early 40s to 55, who often develop a sort of histamine MCAS style reaction at the same time, 
which we can get into. So it's very different presentation. But in terms of what what brings the two groups together, I say breathlessness, long term fatigue, a kind of disinterestedness. So for these very high achieving people, they're now no longer going for a promotion. They're just they don't can't be bothered to get in a relationship or leave a relationship that's not going anywhere. They're off exercise. They're kind of quite low mood or anxious and almost looking for answers. They know something is not right they can't quite put their finger on what it is. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the case for a lot of the people I see. That's what they've said. I think that's probably the overriding comment. And what the main comment I've seen from a lot of people is, I know something's not right. I'm not quite sure what it is, but I know something is not, it's not been right since COVID, but I'm not quite yeah. sure what's wrong. And I think that we, we hear that sort of a lot, I think, don't you, in, in, in clinic. What about the, you've mentioned the histamine and the MCAS, which I know you do a lot of work in. Tell us a little bit about that and and sort of how that affects people and what they would be sort of looking for with that side of things. So that side of things, again, it can happen for men, but it's more likely to happen with women from my sort of clients that I support. So Lucy, when you're going through a change in hormones, so sort of perimenopause, menopause, we're looking for, you know, shift in hormones. And often, particularly around menopause, you've got estrogen goes up and progesterone can go down so estrogen is going up mainly because progesterone is dropping or maybe progesterone is a bit high and estrogen goes down but there's some imbalances there and there's a few things that can affect that one of which is histamine so if you've got poor gut health and certain strains of bacteria or you've got parasites let's say you'll have higher histamine which pushes your estrogen up and if you're very stressed as well as you probably are if all that's going on you've also got a higher estrogen tendency so when we've got this strong estrogen we get this strong histamine reaction with it which is totally normal however it's quite inflammatory and it's a bit like a sort of a bucket like you can keep pouring in histamine to it and eventually it's just going to overflow so you may have been fine in your 20s or 30s and then it's just that shift of hormones that sends things going wrong so you're going to start getting along with all the menopausal symptoms so breathlessness, hives, uticaria, um, redness, palpitations, these sort of things, and strong reactions to food. So I've got some clients with anaphylaxis, but it tends to be more sort of noticing your stomach just feels a bit off with certain foods, like maybe your avocado on toast you're not agreeing with, or you can't have spinach in a smoothie, or you can no longer take your own packed lunch to work because the chicken tastes a bit off because you're not making it from fresh. So these sort of changes. And often it's healthy this. foods, isn't it? That's, you know, you know I think people yeah. always assume that, you know, if you're going to get reactions to foods and things like this, that generally it's going to be the, you know, the unhealthy sort of foods. They don't necessarily always think that things like, you know, like you've just mentioned, the spinach and things yeah. like that. This sort of like Martin, healthy food. So I just had lunch and I had, obviously, I'm, you know, specialised in gut health and everything. So I had avocado on toast with kimchi mushrooms, tomato, avocado, and spinach. So it's like huge histamine. Sounds lovely, very high. Yeah, it's really nice. (laughs) It was kind of a healthy gut lunch. So, and you know, some kombucha on the side. So all of that, all that high fermented food, really, you know, if you've got high histamine, it's not great because it's gonna- people don't- Exactly. And then people don't always realize and they think, you know, the number of times people will come in and be like, no, I eat really healthy lunches and they'll literally yeah. list off what you've just listed off. And it's like, yeah. that's how healthy I am. You know, and it's, I'm so healthy. This is what I'm eating for my lunch. And they just don't realize that actually 
that is really healthy. But if you've got this histamine problem that actually that meal is not healthy for you at this time, that doesn't mean we can't deal with it and get you back to being able to wrong time and I think it's that as well and often these women are going through menopause so they may be gaining a bit of weight which they don't like so they might be upping the exercise and moving away from the yoga and the sensate and all these kind of restorative things in high intensity interval training which is actually going ironically going to raise histamine even more so you've got this perfect storm of all these healthy activities which are pushing up histamine causing that sort of hormonal imbalance and then it really affects your immunity yeah it does and as well as the I mean that you know all of that is kind of on the I guess the symptoms sort of side of things I mean histamine intolerance is is kind of a little bit more of leaning towards a a sort of a condition but the generally we're talking about a lot of symptoms there but what about things that you have you seen things I know I have certain increases in conditions or diagnoses you know diseases you know in clinic but for me I mean obviously I work in autoimmunity so I'm going to see a lot of those people anyway but for me it's been you know COVID sort of either triggering autoimmunity and people that didn't have it before I mean they will have had obviously had the genetics things like that but this was the environmental thing that sort of triggered it off or flaring up of you know of autoimmunity have you seen conditions as well as symptoms? I do that see been... that, yeah. And often we might get into it, but what's interesting if you run stool tests with non-COVID clients is that often if you do a stool test in clinic, you're, you know, it's for your classic person who wakes up with diarrhea and has got bloating and undigested food in their stool. And kind of it comes back and it's not that surprising that there's a lot of work to be done. But if you were to run a stool test for a non-COVID client, you typically see that there's not a lot there, which is really frustrating. So you might get one or two raised histamine or hydrogen sulfide strains of bacteria, but really what you're seeing is depleted gut lining. So low Acomantia species, high Rumeococcus navus, these sort of mucin degrading species. We're seeing very low bacteriorites, bacteriodes and bifobacterium, low lactobacillus, low of these kind of protective elements. So even though at first glance, it's like, oh, everything's fine. Everything is kind of suboptimal. So there's just not the immune response and the immune defense to really fight off infections, which is quite sad, really. So you're not necessarily seeing a big shift of digestive symptoms, but you're noticing that you're not getting over that cold, that cough, get a lot of viral reactivation so your client who maybe had chronic fatigue when they were younger or adrenal fatigue or burnout they're getting those symptoms back again so it's really it's almost like it 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 kind of turns the switch on anything bad that's happened health-wise in your past which isn't helpful yeah i think that's that's sort of where it gets to that i guess that's kind of the link with the autoimmune side of things or it's one of the links there's a few I think they're finding a few mechanisms now with the autoimmunity, but, you know, we're seeing specifically sort of skin related autoimmunities. So things like psoriasis, hair related, like you sort of, you know, alopecia, we're seeing a lot of that. Actually, I've been talking to a, a consultant dermatologist actually about this and he was, he's seeing the same in his clinic. So he's seeing an awful lot more, he's actually seeing a lot more post the, the vaccine as well, a lot of, as, as well okay. as post like the hair shedding yeah lots of it he's seeing it post-covid as well but but also a lot of it post-vaccine and he's getting he's inundated he said with alopecia cases general hair shedding even if they've not been don't get to the point of being diagnosed with alopecia but that sort of general hair 
hair loss and and psoriasis as well. He's getting a lot of that. I'm also seeing a lot of thyroid autoimmunity being triggered. Yeah, lots of Hashimoto's. I I work with a lot of Hashimoto's, so I see Hashimoto's multiple times every day anyway, but I'm seeing a lot more of it that's been triggered, you know, post-infection. We can see they didn't have it before and they've they've kind of got it now. And the other one is neurological autoimmunity as well, Mm -hmm. seeing a big increase in that too. So it seems to be kind of that skin thyroid and thyroid probably again linked with that hormones that you were sort of talking about. But yeah, and the adrenal axis, HPA going off. I'd yeah. say with the cognitive side, yeah, brain fog is a big one. Yeah. I've got a lovely client I'm working with at the moment, still working with, who a PhD student and um, was just finding that cognitive recall and everything wasn't there. But part of that is because we know there's an effect with long COVID and melatonin suppression. So long COVID suppresses melatonin, which is the hormone we need to sleep. So as we know from the work of uh, Dr. Uh, Matthew Walker, we've got that window between midnight and 2 a.m. where we shift, effectively shift memories from short to long-term storage. So if that's not taking place every night because there's not enough melatonin, you're waking up, not only is it pushing that HPA axis and the stress response, but you can't remember what you did the day before. So those nice positive memories aren't there and the get food for the cat, pay this bill also isn't there. So you left feeling quite anxious and irritable, which, you know, doesn't help when you've got these other symptoms. Yeah. And you mentioned let's, you know, if we sort of look at the, some of these mechanisms and the reasons behind it, because they are, I mean, you know, like we've said, it is a very evolving area, but more and more of it is kind of coming out over time. And, you mentioned the, you know, that kind of viral persistence, I guess, and also that reactivation of those latent viruses. So we know that, you know, the Epstein-Barr, the HHV-6, you know, things like that, we're seeing a lot. I'm seeing quite a bit of CMV as well, people that have had that mm-hmm. before, that's being reactivated. But yeah, just t- tell us sort of a bit more about, about that, about the sort of the viral kind of side of the, those mechanisms. So if you have a chronic virus, you're going to get mild inflammation in the body. So you could test that by doing something like CR increases in CRP protein, let's say. If you've got mild inflammation throughout the body, it affects your sleep. So your sleep diminishes, your REM sleep increases, strangely, and that puts stress on the body. So that then natural process, you create more um, IL-6 and TNF. that increases inflammation and the inflammation increases further. It can lead to things like breathing difficulties, heart palpitations, and even pneumonia. So you can see where just one small thing starts affecting other things. You get bigger and bigger symptoms as you go through. Yeah, it's like a chain of chain, sort of effect. chain effect, isn't it? Of everything sort of builds on others. And I think people think as well, once you're over the virus, that you've got the virus you know, if we're, even if we're not talking about those late, the sort of reactivation of the latent viruses, but actually just the COVID virus itself, that you know, they sort of think, oh, you know, I have the virus and, you know, maybe 10 days later, five days later, whatever it might be, they're feeling better. They sort of think that's it. Virus is, you know, it's gone, but actually, you know, it's not that virus can linger in, you know, in your gut, in your brain, in your muscles, you know, so there's lots of places. places, Like you said, I think the problem as well is the type of people who are getting long COVID are the people who were the ex-athletes the kind of go-getters they don't really want to take a whole week off work to rest and recuperate they want to get straight back to it as soon as they feel ready which you know for most things is is good but for this you really need to if you're reactivating past viruses you really need to take that additional bit of time to rest and recover and then get back to things yeah 
and I think a lot of that as well it's you know it's having you know like you said it's having that sort of impact on the gut in terms of that sort of I want to say dysbiosis but it doesn't necessarily like you said it doesn't necessarily come up does it as dysbiosis on the on the test results they're kind of, is okay they're kind of healthy like you you know like you said but it is causing these imbalances I'm seeing like you said a lot of that sort of gut barrier stuff mm. and we know that's a huge trigger that you know and you know on social media the leaky gut you know we call it sort of that intestinal permeability yeah. or that oh, yeah. gut barrier but you know we know that's a real you know it's a real root cause underlying imbalance with autoimmune patients you know it's a real problem and they are seeing that and they're seeing this kind of these you know those unwanted molecules getting then get through we then get that inflammatory process going on the immune system then has to come and mop that up and it's that activation of the immune system which you would think a lot of people say well isn't that like a good thing like my yeah, it's that whole thing your immunity isn't it yeah. so you've, you've loosely got you've got these it's not exactly as simple as this but you've got these two strains of your immune system so you've got one called th1 and you've got one called th2 so what we really want to see is the TH1 is like your fighter response. So if you were to catch COVID, you want TH1 to be nicely activated. So, you know, get all those cytokines out there, the NK cells, fight the infection, you know, control the temperature, etc. And then in a healthy individual, that would start to, you know, start to just regulate. But what we're seeing in long COVID is that TH1 response goes on. And the body doesn't switch into TH2, which is kind of like the, you know, put your put your firing arms down and just relax, which is interesting because we have that backup system because as women, when we're pregnant, we want we don't want our bodies to abort the fetus. So we want this to go into this TH2 response. So it's got a sort of ancestral need to have this response. But without it pushing into TH2, the virus just goes on and on. So from that sort of molecular cellular level, the body still thinks it's fighting the infection when it's long gone. So you've got this increased inflammation, you've got increased NK cells, increased IL-6 inhibitors, and it's not a positive place to be. And of course, with those sort of autoimmune diseases that we're seeing triggered a lot, you can be either, depending on the autoimmune disease you've got, you can be either TH1 dominant or TH2 dominant. So, you know, it depends on which way that falls as well. You know, we'll have an impact. Yeah, Yeah. that's a hard one because as far as I'm aware, you can't really test for, well, there's a few tests you can do for TH1, TH2 dominance, but they're not that great. So I tend to go more on what the client says, you know, are you feeling very stressed? Have you got a very accelerated heart rate? Do you wake up at 1 to 3 a.m. worried about the day and your own health? Or can you actually switch off and relax and enjoy a comedy with a partner or something? And that those sort of markers, I think, are quite useful because yeah. this can be slow progress. For people, I've got a lot of clients that are bed bound, still having to have food deliveries, and can't do more than a three, four minutes walking a day. Mm. Yeah, I had um, I had a client who uh, I've still got a client, I'm still working with her, but she it came up when we tested. We did Cyrex Array five with her because she was getting a lot of kind of those, you know, those like those autoimmune symptoms that are like. They don't kind of fall into a box of an autoimmune disease, but we see that autoimmune picture. And she sort of, she had that. So we did a Ray 5 to find, sort of see what was going on. And actually she just flagged up that she'd had COVID. She's actually a doctor and had worked on the front line in COVID. So been definitely been exposed to it multiple times. And she basically flagged up to everything. She had that real polyreactive autoimmunity, you know, picture going on. We then, because of based on that, we did 
viral testing and she had reactivation of Everything. latent viruses. So she had, e- no, she didn't have EBV actually. She had HHB6, she had CMV. So she had those two were both flaring up. She got gut dysbiosis that was flagging up. She had like immune, her immune and um, inflammatory markers were also flagging up. You know, so it's not always, you know, we're talking about these different mechanisms, but it's not always one, you know, it's not always that a person's going to have one of these mechanisms. It could be a mix. You know, even if we have a small shift in our gut microbiota, let's say, so, you know, everything depletes by five, 10%. You may then find that results in, you know, constipation, whilst you used to be able to have regular bowel movements. And because you're constipated, you're going to build up more estrogen, histamine, you know, all of these products, detox, which can then lead to brain fog and all the rest of it. And then everything's moving slowly, more likely to get SIBO. So you can get these kind of comorbidities at the same time. And yeah, it's really unfortunate because it's which fire do you fight first? And if you're feeling really low in energy, you don't want to start a really aggressive antimicrobial protocol because often the client can't cope with that. So it's yeah it's a tricky position to be in and that's where this detective work comes in a little bit doesn't it exactly. finding what these yeah. different things Getting are and then playing glass out <laughs> yeah and then deciding um, that route forwards yeah. yeah so I find in terms of, sort of dietary approaches obviously it's got to be personalized to the client but there's a few things that really help so I quite like a low histamine diet for long COVID for the reasons we that can be really effective obviously it's not the solution but it's work whilst we work on clearing awesome. that yeah, short term or short term, something like biphasic or the um, low FODMAP diet. So we're reducing lots of sugars and starch or even keto can work quite well. And I tend to just like the research with cancer into keto diets and L- low levels of L-glutamine. I tend to follow that with long COVID clients by not really giving out glutamine for gut health. I do, you know, that zinc carnosine vitamin A, these sort of things instead, just in case that we don't know yet, but there might be that link there. And, you know, just to rule it out. But I do, if there was one, obviously you can't give sort of generic supplement advice, but no, of course. If, there was, uh, if there was one that I'd say definitely worth speaking to your nutritional therapist about, I'd say it's glutathione. So yeah. something that's really antioxidant, you know, really good for breaking down free radicals. I mean, I've got the GSTM1 gene absent. So, you know, I notice if I'm a, say, filling up my car with petrol, I can't face the petrol pump because the fumes are too much for me. So if you're someone like that as well, you'll have an increased need to detoxify. And that's where, you know, cutting back on the caffeine, cutting back on the alcohol and the sugars and spending more time trying to get in that nice rest and digest response, parasympathetic nervous system response can really help, as well as all these other levels of things <laughs> yeah and, and I know you know like you said we can't give you know individual supplement advice out but the you know glutathione is that master antioxidant isn't it it's mm-hmm. I mean there's other things some people can be a little bit sensitive with it and there's other things yeah. we can then give the precursors can't we but if a person can take the glutathione if they can tolerate it then there really is you know there isn't there is no real better antioxidant say that's the best that. one and there's a lot of research so I get lots of people who obviously if you're living this for a number of years they're probably more informed than me in a way in terms of what's new out there. So there's a lot of talk at the moment around NADH um, for the cognitive benefits or PEA, which, you know, I've got a few clients with or D-ribose, 
what else have I got other clients taking? I really like this natural anti-inflammatory approach. So, you know, increase your oily fish, your dark green leafy veg, get your magnesium levels up, B vitamins, you know, all those foundations, vitamin D, vitamin C, because without those there, you're kind of missing out on the, you know, it's, that's the baseline, really. They're the, the big yeah. things to put in first. And it's like anything, you've got to get those foundations in place. And then you can then dig into those actually what other mechanisms are going on now? What other root causes are there that we can then work on? And, you know, superfoods, like I think beetroot's amazing because it's really high in nitric oxide. So that's a really good one for detoxification, but it really depends on the client, I'd say. I like astragalus as well. And I think there's a few um, supplement companies that are starting to add that to gut health products, which I find quite interesting. So you can get... Now there's a nice one by um, Pure Encapsulations, I think, which has got different layers of gut health promoting supplements with astragalus in, which is antiviral. Or you could go through the mycology approach. So mycology is really good. So mushrooms to reset the TH1, TH2 balance, something like cordyceps, reishi, all of these things. So there's definitely a few ways you can go, but it's really important to work with someone. Yeah, it is. And what about the, you know, if somebody does come and work with you, what about the sort of the testing side of things? So I know that you know, there's some things that we, you know, we sort of said that we can't test for. I mean, I, so I've used the, is it Immunosciences Lab? I think the long COVID yeah. panel the and the autoimmune good. panel as well. Some yeah, doctors in the UK, so they were running a sort of CFS panel a few years ago and those doctors who often have long COVID clinics, Scotland's great for long COVID clinics actually, will do a long COVID panel. So they'll test things on the NHS like your vitamin C, your vitamin D3, thyroid antibodies, etc., which is really useful, white blood cells. I tend to start with a stool test and like I said, usually not a lot comes back. I really like the Invivo GI Ecologics because it's easy to pick out the strains that are connected to long COVID and histamine, but that, you know, there's some other great ones out there. Often there's SIBO. So if I'm suspecting SIBO picture, high methane, high hydrogen, high histamine, then a SIBO test as well, or even something, you know, typical like a metabolomics or a NutriVal. So you're looking at where those nutrient deficiencies are. And again, putting your health detective hat on thinking, okay, well, we know they're going to need an increased need for L-glycine because there's likely low glutathione, but you know, why is taurine on the floor of why do they, you know, why is their vitamin D at 20 when they've been taking 4,000 IU for two years? So we're kind of asking questions behind that. And often it is things like the heavy metals, the mold toxicity, the viral comorbidities, all these things we'd look at with CFS clients and autoimmune clients that are layered on as well. (laughs) So you've got the long COVID and then you've got these additional things. Yeah, my client that had the polyreactive autoimmunity and the the you know reactivated viruses and the gut dysbiosis and all that, she had mold toxicity as well. Actually, that was the yeah. other one she had. It's That's so tricky because it's do you deal with that first? With mold, so I also see clients with mold, and I always say correct the environment first. So get pure maintenance in, fog the room, you know, make sure that they're it's all clean, and then do the mold protocol. But again, you've got to be strong enough to do that mold protocol. So if you've got really low commensal bacteria and you know, lots of co-infections, where do you start? You know, it's a, yeah. it's a tricky one. I'm seeing so much mold at the moment, actually. I, I don't know, I've sort of, I've debated whether it's because we've all got sort of, 
low immunity you know like our immune function has been through the you know lockdowns and things like that not necessarily because of long covid just because we've not mixed and we've not sort of caught things and yeah and all of that that our immune systems are not quite as you know sort of as robust as they maybe were washing as well you know like dog I'll walk her but that everyone's carrying around these little alcoholic hand sanitizers and it's all of you know and you do wonder don't you wonder whether that's had an yeah because I'm inundated with mold at the moment it's in just so many clients that have got that as an underlying underlying I wonder if it's because we're looking for it more because maybe we know that there's similar symptoms isn't it it's brain fog it's joint pain it's you know stomach upset but not that core thing of oh it happens with these foods or it happens in this situation although I used to get some where we would test and it would come back negative and I haven't had a negative mold test in clinic isn't it in, in, and I'm talking probably this year I don't think Is I've had a negative a that comes up or different ones it's a lot of octoxin a and citronin are the two that have come up predominantly and a few you know a few others that have come up sort of for various reasons sometimes we know why those have sort of come up but, but yeah octoxin a massively yeah um, yeah I'd say as well I mean we've got to be careful what we say because we can't really comment on the vaccines as nutritional therapists but uh one client did bring up the fact that she knew she had histamine intolerance because she had a rare form of blood cancer so she'd had that diagnosed at the same time and she refused one type of the vaccine because it was known to increase histamine intolerance and it's a very well-known British-made vaccine so it's interesting that came up because she obviously was very knowledgeable, had researched this in advance and chose not to have her booster at a particular time so she could have a different vaccine. And, you know, there will be an appropriate vaccine for you if you choose to vaccinate. But interesting, of course, I've got young children, they weren't vaccinated because they were not of the age. So we've got these new generation coming through unvaccinated, but exposed, and we've got people who are semi-vaccinated some who have had boosters some who have not they're all different types and how does that all relate to one another and have an impact yeah I was talking to somebody yesterday who within her family she'd got her sister had seven vaccines immunocompromised had seven and she'd had I think three and then like her children had gone, had one and decided not to have any more. Yeah. And, you know, like and older children, not children, you know, but within the family, it was interesting how people had taken like different, you know, diff- just different stances and different opinions yeah. and gone down different roads with it. And, you know, they were sort of all over the place. And it is interesting how that's going to impact. Well, it's a good personal choice. And, you know, I wasn't particularly pro vaccination um, just through reading the research. I did decide to get it done myself because... I live with a teacher and I've got children and I just thought you know for their for them I'd like to do it and then last year I had appendicitis so I had a booster which I don't think I'm entitled to this year so I've ended up having four but all different types of vaccine so I'm not sure how they all interrelate it's, it's fascinating yeah it is I'm yeah I had it but well I had one but I was very ill after it so I didn't have any more 
I could have done. We were willing to give me more, but <laughs> but I, it was such a bad experience. I was like, no, thank you. <laughs> I don't think I want to go through it again. But it is, it's different for everybody. I mean, I, I developed psoriasis after one of them. The, uh, yeah, and it, I didn't have that before. It's, yeah, and it's, that autoimmune response, isn't it? Again? Yeah, but I did have autoimmunity. And it, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the psoriasis has gone now and I've, I've dealt with it and sorted it out. But yeah, that was that underlying autoimmune just didn't react well with having it. And I think also there was that such a rush to get the vaccines uh, when they came out that I know a lot of people were kind of coughing and sneezing in the queue. Now, if you get a vaccine when you're coughing and sneezing and your immunity is low, it doesn't take as well. So it's, you know, we talk about bioavailability of vitamins, minerals, our soil, all of these different things. And it's if you're taking a vaccine, you're expecting full coverage and you get 50 percent. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? It is interesting. I think I'm sure there's going to be a lot more coming out about it (laughs) over the years, I'm sure. But yeah, so what, for people, you know, that sort of, that have listened to this, listened to the conversation and, you know, sort of thought, you know, that that might be me or they know they're struggling with it. What would be your, you know, what's your sort of top three tips to people? I know you've mentioned some of the sort of, you know, supplements and food and things like that, but if they just want to take three Take Three away. steps that they could kind of go and do today if they feel like this is something that is is an ongoing problem for them. What would you recommend? Okay, so I'd say if it's if you're someone who suspects on COVID in yourself, no harm in following a low histamine diet for two weeks. You know, there's I can send you one that you can attach to the show notes. But you know, basically just look at your diet, cut out the avocado, the tomato, the spinach, the processed meats. Make sure you're cooking everything from scratch, no alcohol, no fermented foods. All those foods that you've been eating for good gut health, you mm-hmm. might need to rethink for 14 days. If you feel a sudden, you know, everything feels better, that's when you should book in with someone to get further support with this because we don't want to be on that long term. Secondly, I would say, you know, really set a good wake-sleep schedule. So we know there's that definite impact with melatonin across all age groups. So you may wish to have a conversation with your doctor or private doctor about a melatonin prescription, but there's things you can do as well at home. So make sure when you go to bed that the room's dark, that you're in a happy place. You know, if you are very stressed, keep a notebook next to your bed and just write down some things. You know, keep the room slightly cool, listen to something like relaxing music, warm bath before bed, blackout blinds, all these sort of sleep hygiene things, if you like. And then in the morning, get out into the sunlight as soon as you can. Have your tea in the garden, sunlight on your face. So that's one and two. And the third one, I'd say work on your stress response because you could see, you know, me or or Nicole or another functional medicine practitioner, you can put a really complex plan in place and all the testing and everything. But if you're sat at home really stressed and thinking, I don't know what's going on and I can't relax and you're on that sort of fight or flight pathway, you're just pushing that TN, that TH1 response, that inflammatory pathway. So we want to trick our bodies out of that. So a simple one is breathing. So inhale for a count of three, hold your breath comfortably for four counts, exhale for a count of four. And just whenever you catch yourself, do that a few times in the day. Or, you know, I'm a big fan of Sensei, the device you stick on your chest, it vibrates, stimulates your vagal nerve. If you don't want to buy a Sensei, you can do that through humming, singing, gargling. In Scotland, they've even started long COVID choirs, which I think is amazing. So all of these things that you can stimulate that part of your body. And then find something you love to do. So if you are feeling really 
you know, low mood, low energy, etc. with long COVID, you may not want to do much, but you could stick some comedy on rather than a sort of, you know, like the Jimmy Savile documentary or something a bit hard hitting, you know, some lightness, some, you know, old friends episodes, whatever you like watching. That's, it. That's what it always is for me. It's my game. Yeah, friends, exactly. Friend. <laughs> or, you know, Shits Creek, I love that as well. Or stroke your cat, stroke your dog, hug your partner, your friend, your, you know, children. So you're you know, creating more of that positive reinforcement in your life. I'd say even with those three changes, you'll start to feel a bit better. And that's the stage that you could then look into getting further help just to accelerate the, that journey back to wellness. Yeah, I think that's really great advice and some lovely tips there for people to go away with. Um, Karen, thank you so much for joining me today and having this conversation. I think it's really important to you know, it's just to get the word out there, I think, for people with long COVID and let them know that there is actually help and support and people who understand it out there that can really guide them in the next steps. And and that there is, I, you know, I've always said with this podcast, the, the key is to talk, we want to talk about these things and we're talking about, you know, some conditions that are quite serious and they're chronic and things like that, but, but that we want to do it with positivity and show people that actually there always is a positive message. Improved. Yeah, exactly. Because I think, you know, we hear there's so much of the negative out there you know you can google anything it's it was talking about dr google as well yesterday and how much of the negative there is on that and things like that and i think you know if we can get a positive message on this you know talk about the downsides and the symptoms and the bad things and stuff like that but also have a positive spin on it and i think that's you know that's definitely what you've done with this today which is nice and that's what we want to get out there for people so we will link your you know we'll put all your links below to your instagram to your website and and yeah if you've got the if you've got that link to the histamine information yeah below as well for people so yeah definitely head down into the show notes if you want to if you want to get those get those links and follow karen on instagram and and yeah jump into dms and say hi and and say hi (laughs) your your tail with me oh (laughs) speak to you today nicole thank you for inviting me on oh thank you so much i hope you enjoyed this episode of the good health podcast do share the episode with anyone who you think it may benefit or who may enjoy it and help me spread the word by raising the episode or leaving a review. If you want more, you can find other episodes in the series on your podcast app or sign up to my free newsletter. Not only will you get information on new episodes launching, but we cover lots of health topics with the Ask Nicole section where you can send in your questions, my favorite recipes, my favorite products, tips and tricks to help you on the road to good health and much more. You can sign up free of charge at nicolegoodhealth.com forward slash newsletter, also linked below. I hope you have a lovely week. Don't forget to hit subscribe and I'll see you next time.